belief from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known And now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Holy wisdom, holy word. I want to begin by saying how grateful I am to be here today. I was joking earlier that this church is like an abstraction to me like a beacon that is out there always beckoning, and yet I've never been here. And so to come here this morning and feel the spirit that I felt throughout this service thus far, to be greeted in such a beautiful way by the entire congregation and staff and clergy, I just want to say thank you. And I want to say a quick mention of my mother, Mary Lou Duatful Rauschenbusch, who raised four ungrateful children going to a Presbyterian church every Sunday. And she has passed on, but today I feel like she is smiling and with me. So I want to thank all of you for this opportunity to speak with you today and what a blessing it is for me. This morning's talk is titled, Shall Christian Nationalists Win? The Critical Role of Congregations in protecting our diverse democracy. I want to focus on the power we have in our spiritual and religious communities that is absolutely crucial for meeting the current moment. The title of my talk is a reference to a sermon preached 
by Harry Emerson Fosdick in 1922 at First Presbyterian Church in New York City called Shall the Fundamentalist Win? It was one of the most famous sermons of the early 20th century. Fosdick's words have been much cited by liberal Christians over the last hundred years, concerned that their faith is being distorted by other Christians who are rigidly fixated on scriptural inerrancy, riven with apocalyptic worldviews, and intolerant of dissent. Reverend Fosdick was kicked out of his church for preaching that sermon. <laughs> Yet, however serious the religious and theological concerns that Fosdick addressed in the 1920s, the sermon only hints at the adverse effects of Christian fundamentalists had on the society in the early 20th century and in the decades since. A century later, we are faced with an even more serious threat, one that takes the theological language of Christian fundamentalism and grafts it onto a ruthless political machine intent on using the power of the state to enforce its worldview on the entire society. It might be helpful for me to take a few minutes to share some of the defining features of Christian nationalism, which is an ideology, not a religious movement. It is a quest for power and a lens through which a growing number of Americans view their role in our society. It is not new, but it has drawn recent mainstream attention after Christian symbols, flags, and Bible verses were ubiquitous during the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Christian nationalism has its roots in the dangerous myth that we were founded as an exclusive Christian nation and that Christianity holds a privileged place in our nation that must be preserved. They use the rhetoric of a Christian nation with its underpinnings of white supremacy, xenophobia, patriarchy, and authoritarianism to dictate who is a true American and who will be relegated to perennial outside status. The goal of Christian nationalism is the consolidation of power in the hands of an exclusive religious and political movement and it is using churches, courts, and increasingly electoral politics to gain power over the majority of American people. The goal of Christian nationalism is the establishment of a theocracy. Unfortunately, Christian nationalism is not relegated to the shadowed corners of our country. A poll released a few months ago by Public Religion Research Institute and Brookings indicates that close to 30% of Americans are either adherents or sympathetic to Christian nationalism, and that among white evangelical Protestant, that number jumps to nearly two-thirds. One in four Americans believe that the United States should declare itself a Christian nation. As journalist and author Catherine Stewart recently wrote in The New Republic, Christian nationalists are increasingly framing their efforts as a spiritual battle that resonates with many of its followers from the more charismatic traditions. 
Christian nationalism pits the power of Jesus, their side, versus the power of Satan, which are any who oppose them. The spiritualization of political power introduces a zero-sum game in which compromise is capitulation and in which nothing less than God's favor is at stake, stakes which lead to violence. And violence is acceptable in the Christian nationalist worldview. They approve of using violence for their goals at seven times the rate of other Americans. Nearly one in five Americans assert that not only is the United States a white Christian nation, but also that they are willing to fight to preserve it. If you are alarmed, then you are paying attention, because we should be alarmed. But that does not mean that we should lose hope. The good news is, as of now, Christian nationalism continues to be unpopular. 70% of Americans reject the call to declare America a Christian nation. Close to 75% of Americans said they prefer a country made up of diversity of faiths, not just Christianity. 80% of Americans reject the idea that Christians should exercise dominion over all areas of American society. Christian nationalist views on race, gender, immigration, and LGBTQ people are also unpopular and out of step with the American public. We are in a crucial moment, and it will take all of us to counteract the influence of Christian nationalist ideology and to defend our democracy. Spiritual and religious congregations like this one will play a critical role because of the power you have. Now, before I get to the role of congregations, I want to tell you a foundational story about my own spiritual development, which harkens back to my mother. I was raised in a Presbyterian church in Madison, Wisconsin, and we went to church on Sundays, and it was expected of us that around the age 15 or 16, that we would go through confirmation classes to decide whether or not we would join the church. Now, I believe I'm the only person to have failed confirmation in the history of the Presbyterian Church. <laughs> That's because I didn't know that attending confirmation classes was mandatory. Instead, I went and played with my friends and then went home about after an hour or so. And when the time came to get confirmed, I actually showed up the day before and the pastor said to the room, almost all of you will be confirmed tomorrow. And he looked at me. And it taught me one of the most important lessons of my spiritual life, that it mattered that I showed up. It mattered to my family, it mattered to the church, and it mattered to me that I showed up for what I believed and showed up along others as a community. Right now in this pivotal moment in our nation's history, it matters that we as individuals, but also we as faith and spiritual communities of all kinds, show up and stand up against Christian nationalism. In this moment when civic spaces where people traditionally congregate, such as public schools, higher education, libraries, are being hollowed out, 
the physical campuses that house spiritual and religious congregations can serve as welcoming locations where people can continue to come together to find common ground and common purpose. Isolation and separation are the enemies of democracy. But when we come together and grow in trust and understanding and we build a powerful inoculation against a culture of demonization and distrust in which Christian nationalism thrives. Many congregations are already playing this role like Fourth Presbyterian. And it would be powerful to see an interconnected map of Chicago with dozens, probably hundreds of stars signifying spiritual and religious communities that are destinations where diverse civic life is valued and people from every background are invited to physically come together and know one another. In addition to locations where we can draw people in, congregations have networks to send people out for rapid mobilization and response. Congregations are people, and people are power. If a local temple or mosque or other communities has been targeted with bigotry and violence, as, in, as is increasingly the case, congregations like this one can bring out people to show up to offer solidarity and support. In addition to moments of crisis, congregations have the power to mobilize a diverse group of religious and spiritual people from a range of traditions to show up side by side in public forums, community rallies, to the voting booth, sending clear signals to our elected officials and to our neighbors that we reject the exclusivist claims of a Christian nationalism and demand that our community be a place where all people of all faiths and all backgrounds are treated equally under the law. Congregations can also provide a hub of reliable information sharing and education. Knowledge is power, and congregations are places of learning about spiritual traditions and practices, but also about the world in which we live reading books together, watching films, educating ourselves about our country's history and the experiences of diverse Americans in an environment of open inquiry is more important now than ever when there is so much information, disinformation at work. As we know, Christian nationalists are attempting to erase our history with book bans and restrictions on college courses. We need to mobilize to reverse those efforts. But in the meantime, the learning can go on inside of congregations like this one. I talked to one pastor in Florida who is organizing an accredited African-American studies AP course in his church for which students will receive credit. In a conversation I had with Diana Butler Bass, she suggested that every congregation should look at the banned book list in their community and invest in buying those books for their congregation's library. And as I was writing this sermon, a seminary classmate of mine posted that she was reading from her church's banned book brunch selection. <laughs> now, it's tragic that it has come to this, but it does call upon the great part of a religious tradition in America where congregations have been places of resistance as well as locations where truth is protected and shared. 
Perhaps the greatest contribution of congregations to this effort will not be what, but how we will approach the struggle against Christian nationalism. I confess that Christian nationalism and the people who are its followers really frighten me. As a gay man with a husband and two children, I hear the words they use to talk about me, and I fear what they would do to my family. I find my hand bawling into a fist as I prepare for the fight ahead. We are in a dangerous situation, and we need to be heads up about the threat. However, it is worth considering how we shall engage this struggle without becoming that which we despise. This is perhaps the most important role that congregations can play in this current moment. We heard the reading from 1 Corinthians. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I might boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This reading that is so recognizable to many of us from weddings was not actually written about the love between two individuals. It was written about an early Christian church in Corinth that was divided by issues of class, gender, backgrounds, and different ways to practice their faith. Earlier in the letter, Paul attempts to persuade the church how much they need each other and that the diversity within their church is part of their strength. And in this passage, he acknowledged that there are many ways for followers of Jesus to practice their faith. But there is one characteristic that is the most important, and that is love. One more confession. When I hear about love, when I feel angry and threatened, as I do about Christian nationalism, it's hard for me to contain my rolling eyes. I mean, come on, love? However, when I look to the spiritual leaders whom I admire the most, they talk about love. Mahatma Gandhi said, the nectar of love alone can destroy the poison of hate. Gandhi's student, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. told us, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great of a burden to bear. And Nelson Mandela said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. The challenge Christian nationalism poses to our country is grave, but certainly no graver than what Dr. King, Mahatma Gandhi, or Nelson Mandela faced. They chose love because they looked into the deep well of their spiritual traditions and saw the path of love offered the greatest resource and tactic that would actually lead to the future they longed for. The opportunity for us is to do the same. It starts in a way that is very personal. 
And the local congregation can help each of us learn how to access the love in our spirits, hearts, and minds. How do we learn the discipline of love? Because it is hard to learn and requires practice. But as so many of our spiritual forebears remind us, it can and it must be done. Each diverse congregation will call upon its own wisdom, which is the beauty of it. And we can learn from one another's tradition of love as a source of ultimate power. We can also learn the collective practice of love that is nonviolent resistance. In an interview I did with Representative John Lewis about his time in the civil rights movement, he told me that people had to be trained in nonviolence before they were ever allowed to go out to the protests. Our congregations can be a place where we learn the deep roots of nonviolent protests and show up with love, even as we resist the powers that would try to demean or destroy us. Love will be our guide, our tactic, and our power as our congregations mobilize in this time of great challenge to our democracy. In our tradition, we believe that the resurrection of Jesus shows us that love is more powerful than death. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love taps into the deepest wells of the spirit and joins people together to refuse to hate. Love diffuses lies. Love targets no one. Love casts a vision for the future in which everyone has dignity and worth. Love is the beloved community. This is not just about them out there. This is about us. When we are overcome by love, we show up and we uncurl the fist and extend the hand to people of all faiths, races, and backgrounds, even those who now adhere to Christian nationalism. Together, we will be powerful, and together, love will win. May it be so. <laughs>